Hi, Tim Kask here. Faced with a TPK and have no idea what to do? Well, you might have had you listened to Save or Die. You passed through the door. You find a small room filled with gold and jewels and a red dragon. He starts to breathe. Save or die. Howdy do everybody, welcome to Save or Die number 127. With you is DM Mike, who must save versus back pains, it seems. And I am joined by DM Liz, who tried to save versus allergies, but failed horribly. Hello, the part of DM Liz will be played today by DM Smoking Grandma. Come <laughs> <laughs> and give your grandma a kiss. That's yeah. right. <laughs> And save versus Tim Cask, was it? Save versus morning breath. Morning breath. Okay. <laughs> save versus morning breath. DM Jim. I don't breathe fire, but I do breathe smoke. <laughs> well, you probably have a better chance of saving versus morning breath than you do saving versus Tim Cask. Tim could be scary. <laughs> true, true. Uh, not when you and know guy? him. Hmm? Not when you know him. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately... The guy who saved his fail versus save or die, John Peterson, author and friend of the show. I think I must be saving versus uh, having recently really acquitted to to Maine here, so I'm saving versus uh, imminent cold weather. Yeah. (laughs) Save versus white dragon breath. (laughs) (laughs) That's some excellent lobsters up there, though. They do, you know what I what I've been favoring up here actually are these um, little neck clams that you can get raw, raw little neck clams. It seems to be a main delicacy. Okay, wow. <laughs> you can have those. <laughs> no, they're they're fantastic. I promise. Well, uh, a friend of mine up in uh, upstate New York, um, Buffalo, keeps trying to get us to come visit around November and December. And I'm like, why can't we visit you in August? When being in Texas is atrocious? No, no. But anyway, as you can tell by the intros, we're going to be talking about saving throws today. What is their origin? What is their effect? Are they good? Are they bad? Fortunately, John Peterson's here to school us on the beginnings of the saving throw mechanic. But first, do we have any emails? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, we probably really do, but I'm not reading any today. <laughs> Sorry. No emails. We have no voicemails, so never mind. Yeah. I mean, I think the real question is, what do we need to do with this show to cause there to be just a deluge of emails, voicemails, controversy, engagement, 
Um, I'm sure saving throws will get us there. <laughs> Sooner or later, yeah. Especially we talk about who invented what and when and where. <laughs> I've seen some but, really uh, interesting discussions on saving throws on dragonsfoot.org, and they're all wrong. There you go. Email taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> How so? Very dare you. No, no, the best way to get emails is I've read them on Knights and Knaves, and they're all wrong. All right. Well, any other comments? Then we will go into announce uh, our commercial break and then right into Game On. Dungeons and Dragons will return after these messages. Welcome to Glover, a podcast dedicated to the mutant crawl classics roleplay. Dungeons and Dragons. What are you doing? It's game time. I think I play too much. People say it's weird. We should cut back. That's insane. Game, Mrs. Hudson, is on. Game on! Game on! Game on! Game on! Here we are talking about saving throws. Why are we talking about saving throws, John? Well, I mean, so I suggested this theme, um, not just because it seemed a bit meta, right? If you have a show called Save or Die, at some point you should sit down and talk about what, what really are saving throws. What are they supposed to mean? Where do they come from? Why do we have them? Do they actually serve the purpose they're designed for? Things like that. Um, but I think we'd because, have done it before episode 127. <laughs> well, I, I did. I can't say that I listened to the whole 126 before this to make sure that this was never at least uh, touched upon in the past. But um, I thought dedicating a whole show to it would be really cool. And since you guys have me on a lot, you know, I figured I would push back and say, here's something I think would be cool to talk about. And just selfishly, this is something that I'm writing about, actually, at the moment um, for a project of mine. And I, it just helps me to, like, talk about it, right? And, I mean, you guys know as much about the old school as, as anybody I'd like to talk to. And I certainly respect um, your viewpoints, your experience with this. So definitely just being able to bounce ideas off of you is good for me. So, I mean, for me, it's all cool. gravy to come here and talk to you about <laughs> it. Um, are, you, mean, you know, are you for real? Because in my head, you listen to Save or Die and just sit there at home and go, wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> nope, that's not right. Yeah, well, history isn't everything, right? This isn't purely a historical question. I think a, a lot of this, um, I think the discussion we'll have really kind of speaks to the roots of um, what it is for something to be old school and what what has kind of changed about games, I guess, that people have designed that they call RPGs over the last decades. And um, 
I think I think your attitude towards saving throws is one of the things that um, is is one of the sure indicators. I, I will postulate of kind of where you fall on that spectrum for from old school to whatever else we want to call things that aren't old school. <laughs> okay. Well, to get things going, when was the first use of the saving throw mechanic that you've found? I think it was I, the earliest one I've ever read was Featherstone back in the '60s. Yeah, Featherstone was really copying this guy, Bath, Tony Bath. Now, we Ah. all know Tony Bath. He's really famous for his Hyborian campaign, right, for being the guy who first kind of integrated Conan stories into war games. Now, I mean, he mostly did this, though, not to create like a fantasy role-playing game. This is in the late 50s. He was already writing about this stuff in 57, 58, 59, about his experiments with it. He just kind of wanted to have a cool, like, ancient wargaming world. And so he wanted to use, like, Aquilonia and Hyrcania and Sumeria and places like that as the armies that would be contesting in this. Sort but, of a rationale of putting ancient cultures to war, like on a ba- on a war game table that would never have really actually sparred. Yeah, that that, and you know, he wanted to kind of have the narrative run in some way that was just completely detached from history. At that time, still, most people that were doing um, war games were, were were pretty much on historical rails, and there weren't a lot of people doing like ancient and moderns then. There were some, but uh, I'm sorry, ancient and medieval then. Um, his medieval rules, which came out in '56, are one of the earliest really we could point to, and he had this fascinating kind of two-phase combat mechanic in his war game where. Um, like say if there are archers shooting at a bunch of um, armored footmen, you would have one uh, die roll that would be your accuracy checked, like how many of those armored footmen were hit by the archers. But then you do a second roll, which was the saving throw. And the saving throw would determine how many um, how many of them were saved by their armor. Um, how many of those arrows they hit the target, but it, it wasn't actually a lethal blow. And those are the first places we really see saving throw being used is in mechanics like that. See, I just learned something already because I thought that the origin of the mechanic was so that when the archers hit the uh, unit, they couldn't kill the general figure. Because that would greatly, drastically alter the outcome of what could be considered historical simulation. Well, so that that there is something to that in that um, different figures would have different saving throw targets in bath system. So, like it, uh, you know, conventional guy might be saved on you know a six, whereas a general or a knight who's extremely well armored uh, might be saved in like a four, five, or six. Ah, and these are so, all d sixes. Yeah, these are all d six rolls. They weren't doing anything with polyhedrons at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, yeah, they they did scale the saving throw to that. And that mechanic, that fundamental saving throw mechanic, ended up then in Tony Bath's uh, War Game, ended up in a bunch of other texts that were published in the 60s. Okay. But then, of course, Gygax, when he put it into Chainmail, I assume it came from Gygax, or maybe it came from Arneson? Well, so I uh, wrote this piece this year about this interesting forgotten father of gaming, a guy by the name of Leonard Pat. Um... And this this is a piece that came out, I guess, in uh, January or something of this year um, from a set of rules that he published in 1970 for Middle Earth Wargaming. And um, I, I believe there's pretty conclusive evidence, actually, that the Chainmail rules uh, borrowed heavily from these pat uh, fantasy rules, these Tolkien rules. Uh, they were demonstrated at a miniature figure collectors of America MFCA convention in 1970. And, um, well, I mean, this is one of these, these kind of hard... Um, 
uh, historical edges that you sometimes encounter when you do do what I do. Um, it seems pretty clear that uh, Chainmail kind of borrowed that and didn't really credit Leonard Pat. <laughs> and well, un- that wasn't unusual at the time, was it? I mean, it, it wasn't. Um, I mean, it, you know. I'd like to say a lot of the time Gary actually did give out uh, good credits, and um, you know I I wouldn't want to say that uh, he never did. This this seems like a kind of weird omission, though, to be honest. Um, but I mean, so the 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 um, the systems are very very similar for um, a certain set of of core elements um, in the Leonard Pat rules. They have. Uh, rules for for wizards, for um, orcs, for dragons. Um, they have heroes, anti-heroes. They don't have superheroes and anti-superheroes like Chainmail does. But um, to see how kind of precise the the rules align with with Chainmail, uh, wizards can cast a spell. It's called Fireball. Um, <laughs> this spell is a range spell. The range of it is exactly twenty four inches, um, and it has a blast radius. It doesn't target an individual war game unit. It has a blast radius. And if you're in this blast radius, if you are a hero figure, you are allowed to roll a d six for a saving throw. And if you make your saving throw, you escape unscathed from that blast. Now, the, the most telling of them, though, is probably that if you're a dragon, you don't get a saving throw, but in fact, you are driven back for one turn. Uh, you cannot attack and you are driven back on the wargame field. That's a very precise mechanic that you have a figure called a wizard. He casts a spell called Fireball. Fireball has this blast radius. If you're a hero, figure called a hero, you get a saving throw. If you're a dragon, you don't, but instead are driven back one turn. That entire mechanic is replicated exactly in Chainmail. Um, yeah. Same, we can show that Jeff Perrin actually subscribed to the newsletter that this was published in, which was the Courier uh, newsletter of the New England Wargamers Association. Um, and he even commented on this specific issue. He wrote a letter to the next issue commenting on another article in this issue. So kind of Je- Jeff Perrin must have seen it. And of course, Jeff Perrin co-authored Chainmail with Gygax. So, I mean, I think that, they're, 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 you know, you could say it's circumstantial. I think it's pretty... Um, pretty implausible that this was not a borrowing from the Pat rules. I think you got enough for a conviction there. Uh, yeah. But, but, it, right. If that's the case, I think we have to say that the saving throw mechanic, especially saving versus spells, and this being you either make your save and you live or you don't and you die, um, that seems to have come directly from this guy, Letter Pat, who nobody had heard of until, um, until this year. Well, a uh, side question. Did any of these people have the idea of different saving throw categories, or was it just the saving throw? So Chainmail, of course... Okay, yeah, so Chainmail, really, the only thing you're saving against is spells. There Mm -hmm. wasn't any um, concept of, I think, saving versus poison or anything like that. Breath weapon. Um, Well, you kind of of do save versus the dragon breath, actually, in Chainmail. But... um, yeah, that that there was there wasn't like a concept of uh, petrification. Well, I, there were basilisks by second ed chainmail, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have to look at my chainmail. <laughs> I'm sure I could like <laughs> pull up my copy of it here and uh, and no, flip through it. No problem. I, I just wondered. I I know they kind of did it in chainmail. I was just wondering if any of the prior people had done it or not. Well, no, it sounds like he didn't. Would it be fair to say, John, that chainmail begins the trend that goes through the original D and D Brown books of? Uh, each saving throw is as the case may be. You know, system shock, resurrection, poison, death, whatever, there's a saving throw for it. Because in OD&D, um, it's kind of a laundry list before it got more yeah. codified in AD&D. 
Yeah, um, I'm looking actually right now through my second ed chainmail to look at like the bossless mechanics. So there is a save versus petrification in that uh, because of the bossless, and I'm I'm sure we could go through and find other examples similar to that in chainmail. But chain uh, so D and D really was the place where there was a table, and this table listed these as kind of abstract categories, and then different creatures or magic items or spells could be kind of plugged into those categories and you'd say this is the kind of save you you need to make for example when you when a yellow mold lets its spores go well that's a that's a poison save and you just look at the poison table to figure that out mm-hmm. or gorgon breath would be breath weapon petrification. or pe- petrification. petrification yeah okay <laughs> well now that we've kind of figured out where it came from, more or less, what was it really supposed to emulate? And this is, I think, one of the most interesting questions about saving throws. Um, so, I mean, it's important to remember in, in D&D and even in Chainmail, they don't really say much about what, like, if this was a property of the physical world that it was supposed to simulate. Um, certainly we, could, we can conjecture from the fact that as you went up in level, your saves improved that you know that that tells us something about um how your power level relates to this that pretty much your saves in all those categories always go up across the board as your level improves um in in such a linear fashion um you know maybe suggests that it's uh less of a concrete uh relationship with some some physical property that you have and more of just a story mechanic and they're completely silent about this, though, in D&D. Like, they, they aren't even clear in OD&D in the first printing what you roll to make it. People were confused if you were supposed to roll 3D6, if you are supposed to roll a D20, if you are supposed to roll 2D10. People all mm-hmm. through the fanzines were talking about this just had no idea because uh, it was so poorly specified initially. Right. The, the definitions are never uh, defined by Gary until the DMG, which is way down the road from what we're talking about. It is, and, and by then he has a real um, elaborate story about it, frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he, he talks about it um, like it isn't a property of the physical world or about the, the character so much as it is an attempt to get um, the game system aligned with a kind of fiction that it intended to emulate. So rather, rather than imagining, you know, there's a world and the property you have is that I'm especially resilient. Um, instead it's emulating, um, that in fantasy fiction, the hero survives. <laughs> and that, mm-hmm. that's really kind of what those couple pages in the DMG that talk about this say. I find it interesting also that in original D and D there are certain limited categories of things you get saving throws from, whereas listening to what you were saying about Bath, Featherstone, and everything, a save was just made generically to avoid damage. Any damage. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was... Uh, there were specific things you saved against, like I, I gave the example of the arrow shot um, as one. Right. So what, I think it wasn't necessarily any category of damage that you might be able to resist. Um it is fascinating, though, that in um, Chainmail, in Pat, and even in some of the transitional manuscripts, when we look at like the Menard fragments, the things that we have kind of from the development of D&D in 1973, um, saves were not—so uh, spells, in, in that case, still didn't do hit points of damage. A fireball spell, a lightning bolt spell were simply fatal or not. And so the only things you really were saving against when it was just spells like it is in, in Chainmail or um, originally or in Pat, they were always save or die. There was save no, or die. <laughs> right. There was no concept that um, you would save to take like half damage because none of these things actually did points of damage. They just killed mm. you. 
I know from some uh, discussions with Tim Cass that specifically when it comes to spells, uh, the institution of saving throws was part of Gary's uh, trying to balance the game out. So that it was, very, according to Tim, it was very important to Gary that wizards not take over the game or magic users. And I could see a point to that. I mean, you know, if you're hit by a fireball spell, you get to save for half damage. You don't get to save for half damage when you're hit with a runka or a <laughs> or a crowbill or you know a sword of any type. So I can see that. And I mean, you know, you make a two-hit roll in D and D when you're you know swinging your sword. You don't make a two-hit roll with your lightning bolt. Right. Um, so really, you needed a, a balancing mechanics, some kind of check that would determine how effective it was going to be, other than just you know rolling all of your d6s to see how much damage it did. And saves became that. I mean, you can really look at them as just a, a mirror of the, the accuracy check you make uh, with, with a two-hit roll. Well, getting back to the fantasy fiction aspect of it, um, I believe Ken St. Andre said something similar in Tunnels and Trolls. For his save, even though it was he, – he admitted it was entirely based on luck. I mean, you know, so they actually had a luck stat in Tunnels and Trolls, which makes that a bit easier. We didn't have that in, in D&D. But, I mean, he, he was perhaps the first one, because this was 1975, right, really one of the first close imitators of D&D. He was the first one to come out and say that the function of a saving throw was to uh, emulate that just that lucky chance you have. When, whenever something's going on, to just to just avoid it. And a lot of the people who talk about saving throws in the literature talk about fate and destiny and luck. They, it, the whole concept is tied up in this notion that uh, maybe you're being, um, you know, preserved for greatness, and that uh, this this is there to help you have an epic adventure because an epic adventure can only happen if you survive long enough <laughs> to do notable things across multiple sessions of a campaign. Oh, this tags into one of my favorite things to talk about that people love to squabble over is realism in what is a medieval fantasy role-playing game. And they always say it that way, and that's not really what you're considering with saving throws. It's not to make it more realistic, because you're playing a game where a human being can extend his arm and cast a gigawatt lightning bolt, right? So it's not (laughs) realism as much as it is verisimilitude for the setting. Or in uh, the case we were just talking about, verisimilitude to the uh, inspirational primary sources of the literature. And and that's the fascinating divide, right? I mean, if, if it's really about making this like a Conan adventure... Uh, Conan Adventure has its formulaic qualities, and you can you can kind of look at saving throws as one of the first mechanics that we see in the game that tries to um, speak to that kind of how do you achieve the formula of the story rather than just what is what would the you know physics be of a medieval fantasy world if there were one. I think you know people think about this like the Heinlein you know Magic Incorporated. I want to have a sensible, rational world where people use magic and simulate what all the properties of that world would be, and there must be some like resistance property you have to magical actions and so on and when when uh, saving throws were purely for that function of providing that uh, counterpart to the two hit role just resisting magic um, you, you can kind of make that argument but then when you read the way Gary talks about them in the DMG in 79 and especially the way they talk about them in bunnies and burrows uh, that's perhaps the most interesting of the cases you see in that much more about how it's it's preserving the story and the narrative and of course, it creates a fine line. You know, where do you where do you stop preserving the narrative and begin to just favor the player unfairly? 
Well, and that's that's the fascinating thing about the text of Bunnies and Burrows. So Bunnies and Burrows, it's a fascinating little game. I, I, you know, we all know it by name. I think it's really like it's it's insufficiently studied, though. There are a lot of really interesting innovations in Bunnies and Burrows. And there's there's fascinating text in there about saving throws where, you know, Dennis Starr and uh, his co-author recommend that referees maybe throw a bit of shade on the dice when they're rolling saving throws and a rabbit might be killed that they um, maybe well, touch it. Yeah, I was going to say, let's call it what it is. <laughs> he's, he's advocating fudging the die rolls. He is, and he, he says when, when it's a life-or-death situation, you know, they kind of spoke to their experience as referees. Now, of course, this, this could not have been more than two years of experience of referees at this point. This is 1976. <laughs> but in our long experience as referees, what we discovered is that really it makes the game better if the, the DM um, maybe... Behind the screen, um, you know, j- joggles that die a little bit so that you s- you live to fight another day and the story of that rabbit can continue. Well, I find that funny because I was just today reading an issue of Imagine Magazine, number 10 in 84, I think. And they were talking about the Games Day 83, where apparently during a talk, they, the audience just went dead silent when uh, Gary Gygax mentioned that a line, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something along the lines of good DMs roll dice in order to make noise. Yeah. Well, what he, what he goes on to say in that quote is, he, they just decide what happens. That's <laughs> the, the radical thing that he ooh, says. And everybody's like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that, that guy says he could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, From the guy who wrote AD&D, you know. Well, and, you know, AT&D, Gary, Gary makes such a big deal about um, creating kind of consistency and standardization of play that the, the whole point of the um, AD&D exercise in some respects was to take the, um, for want of a better word, like the, the goop that OD&D had evolved into, like, unbidden. It's just people endlessly hack the system and, you know, given, given the, the latitude the system gives you to just modify the rules arbitrarily, everybody did. And they, they turned them into things that were just unrecognizable. There was just no standardization across different referees. And, Dungeons and fevers. Yeah, right. I mean, so Gary really wanted there to be a um, predictable, you know, rigid, by-the-book version of D&D, and yet when he played it himself, <laughs> right, or when he was talking to this audience in England in 1983, you know, he makes this just statement that completely undoes everything that he was arguing for in the book. So, um, Well, I always kind of looked at it as when Mike and I were in the SCA, all the different kingdoms have their own regionalized rules of how to fight heavy weapons but whenever there would be a tournament between two kingdoms there was a set of standardized rules that both parties agreed to so Mm. that everybody knew what to expect when they got together and that's kind of how I tended to look at the AD&D rule booklets you know here is a standardized set you know if you're going to go to a convention and play in a tournament you are probably going to wind up playing by what is set down in this book and now you know what to expect yeah of course that gets into the whole idea of role-playing tournaments which i think is an exercise in futility myself but <laughs> i can't i can't fault you, gary coming from a war, war game background you, you know. hush your mouth sir what role-playing what? game tournaments are awesome ah <laughs> I'm not saying they're not fun. 
I'm not saying they can't be great. I'm just saying this idea of objectively judging one team versus another on pure, you know, accomplishment or what they did or didn't do is a very, very awkward. Pro- it's got to get subjective when you come up with a winner to some degree. Well, and, and you, there's no room for fudging the dice, right? There's no room for the DM right, behind the screen, you know, deciding, well, this rabbit should live another day. Um, I mean, yeah. But, one of the most interesting things, too, about the, the Bunnies and Burrows text about that is that um, the authors get that if the players realize that you're doing that, it, it'll ruin the game for them. Um, mm-hmm. So that there's all this text in, in there that, that says that you need to kind of maintain the illusion that actually, you know, everything is being decided fairly because otherwise players would just become dependent on it. G- Gary knew this as well and talked about it a lot. So I think I think what we probably see, you know, in the contrast between Tomb of Horrors, right, and the way that he advocated playing in 1983, it isn't just the passage of time in that. I think it's a, the difference between what you actually do when you're running these games, right, uh, casually uh, be behind the screen with, without anybody knowing, and then, you know, the, the brave public face you've got to put on it as you present this as a fair and impartial execution of the system. Yeah. Um, I'll save Jim from having to do it here, but doesn't uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics have a luck stat? <laughs> are, are, are you asking me? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, um, if to try and emulate the spirit of the very games we're discussing with modern D twenty mechanics, Joseph Goodman decided that the way to go was to, uh, you know, do what would be D twenty modern uh, saving throws of uh, what is that? Will, reflex, and stamina. But you've got a luck stat that you can uh, burn depending on your character class, maybe permanently to uh, nudge those rolls when you need to. So sort of like fate points, in a way. In a way, sort of like fate points, and fate points are, are fascinating to me. I mean, if there's one thing about this history that um, that that I think shows a real moment of transition, um, a, a real kind of kind of shift if it, um, in the way people approach these games, it was when the ability to fudge the roles started to move from the DM to the player. And like you know, if if the DM is all doing this kind of you know. Uh, maintaining the illusion of the players like behind the referee's screen, that's one thing. When it then changed to become something that the, the players uh, could have this this stat and it was part of the mechanics of the system, that at times, yeah, if they don't like that role, they don't like this outcome, uh, they can spend this resource that they have. And I've done quite a bit of research into the origins of that concept. Um, and, uh, you know, as far, as far as I can tell, it looks like Merle Rasmussen is the person I... I single out as being the great innovator of that oh top um, secret it was top secret yeah and it, merle was good enough to share with me uh some of his design notes and his correspondence with tsr in the late 1970s and i i even managed going through these many many hundreds of letters actually to find the one letter where he wrote in to al hammock and to mike carr and said <laughs> um look you know I, I don't think saving throw as a concept really works for the secret agent genre. That was the first thing about it that's really interesting. That, and that, that kind of jibes with this idea that um, saving throws are maybe tied to this heroic fantasy, right? You're Conan, and you just have a chance to escape the jaws of that creature because you're Conan, and that's, that's who <laughs> you are, and you get to escape the jaws of that creature. Um, that just didn't seem to like work for Merle as he was building up Top Secret. And so he proposed as an alternative these, these two properties. There was going to be a, a fame point and a fortune point system 
And the the fortune point system was something every beginning character would get. And a fortune point was a, a resource that you could expend that would just let you reverse an outcome of your, your player that you didn't like. So he, he wrote this all up in a letter in 1978. This is probably the earliest place uh, to date, anyway, that I've seen this. Um, and, and with it, with it, there was this accompanying idea of a, a fame point, and that you would kind of get your fortune points and you started, and as you burned those, they would go away, and you'd never, you'd never get any more. Fame points would accrue, though, basically as you go up in level and top secret, as you get more famous. James Bond obviously can't die to, like, some, you know, stray bullet from, you know, a worthless minion here, right? From and some so, security guard. Who, right. <laughs> I rolled good. Right, for that. <laughs> but the way that's cast, I think it very much is, is true to the spirit of the saving throw, right? That it is about what a James Bond story is like. And, um, you know, because James Bond is too famous to be killed by something like that. And that isn't how it works in the real world. No matter how famous you are, you know, you can still be John <laughs> Lennon and walk out of your, you know, apartment, your apartment building get, one day and get shot. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like we're dancing around in a circle the same uh, basic point that the idea is to prevent a drastic outcome. It is to prevent a drastic outcome. Like I said, I think the interesting inflection point in this is when that move from being this illusion, right, that the DM cast to something that the player was engaged in. And I mean, there, I think there, there are a lot of important um, questions about how, how that works and whether w- which of these mechanics is, is better for, I guess, different kinds of games or for different kinds of, of players. And uh, so some people, I think, um, look at those those mechanics like uh, fortune points and say, well, I, you know, it, it takes me out of the game, right? I, I have to stop thinking like a character and start thinking like, you know, a player, a game player to understand when I use this. To, now I'm, you know, collaborating and controlling the story. And for, for some people, that's great. That's exactly what some people want. Um, mm-hmm. For other people, though, it it, do, it doesn't work, and it's one of the interesting, I get, like I said, inflection points as games evolved, and I think it's one of the points of demarcation between whatever the things are we call old school and perhaps things we don't. Though, though, ironically, as I'm as I'm saying, these things all seem to have been there virtually from the start. Like all these <laughs> ideas were there in the '70s and have just kind of been repackaged and reinvented in in a variety of different ways over well, the decades. Couldn't you argue that the hit point system? was in a way trying to avoid rather than just one hit die kind of thing that wasn't in its way it uh, and the increases you did level to level to reflect that increasing heroicness oh i I think it definitely is but and we we could ask a lot of the same skeptical points about what hit points really mean right oh Uh, wow people (laughs) endlessly debated this that's a whole nother show Yes, it is. Well, they just debated today too. Uh, you know what? What that's is it, where we we'll get our emails from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope already we're getting emails for this, right? <laughs> All the things we're saying about saving throws and fate points—that uh, should be. Please, uh, you know, send us your flames. Well, I have a question for John. Yeah. Okay, so as we like when you were talking about uh, what Merle uh, did with Top Secret, where he's taken those fame and fortune points and virtually constructed a proto story point system that would come later in modern games. Um, what do you think of uh, Dr. Suster's uh, uh, approach in Bunnies and Burrows as it would contrast to a modern game like Mouse Guard, which has its own fails... It, it has fail-safes built into the rules specifically to keep characters from getting killed, explicitly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the system of Mouse Guard well enough to comment. I mean, I know some of uh, Luke's other games, like Burning Wheel, perhaps a bit better. Um, 
So, I mean, I, if you explain it a bit, I could probably help, but... <laughs> well, to, to, uh, I mean, the, to achieve things in the game, it's a dice pool, and you get you roll however many dice you're allowed to roll, and you get so many successes, and there's a threshold that you're meeting is how you achieve anything. When a character takes fatal damage, you make one of those rolls, and with enough successes, rather than die, you merely... Uh, Uh, the character merely suffers some huge disadvantage, like he's removed from the game, he's knocked out for the rest of the session and comes back next session with a limp or something. Right, right. No, so there there are a lot of mechanics that work that way, definitely. Um, I mean, I might even... um, Gee, point. So I I think Merle's system, honestly, wasn't too different in the sense that you could prevent a fatal bullet from hitting you, but you still, if you by spending a fortune point, but you still have um, some negative consequence to that, right? You you'll just be like horribly maimed or something, rather (laughs) rather than killed. Um, And there's a and there's a finite amount of them you have to spend. Yeah, there's another system like this that I I'm really fascinated with, which is the SPI game Commando. Um, again, tellingly, not a oh, wow. fantasy game. And this is a 1979 game, and at this point, SPI they were still trying to figure out like how to do a role-playing game, and they still everything they put was still like half a war game. So this this was a game they shipped where there was like a, a book of role-playing rules in it and a book of war game rules in it, and you could kind of pick and choose which ones you were using in, in different occasions. Didn't but the, that originally show up in strategy and tactics because I think I had that issue. Um, I'm sure it was recently discussed there. I'm not sure they actually shipped that one with an SNT. I, they might, they may have. I think it was called Raid at the time or something. Mm. It could be. But anyway. Yeah, the, the commando mechanic has this whole notion that once you... So they were they were trying to simulate not what it is to be a commando in the real world, but to simulate the commandos of heroic films. And so it's filled with all these kind of film conventions, including as your your character kind of goes up in level, the the, the level gradations for uh, heroes in this are kind of you become like a TV action hero or like a you know major movie star hero. And at these different levels, you start getting these hero points that you can spend, and these can be spent to avert disaster and disasters can be things like you know you you get shot for example um you can spend a hero point and you roll on a table to see what happens as a result of you spending your hero point and it can be things like you know a passing golf ball from like a, a golf course <laughs> to high, uh, happens to get in the way of the bullet and prevents it from hitting you and so you live it's all these like really theatrical uh miraculous escapes they call it a miraculous duck escape. magnum duck <laughs> yes <laughs> right right there, there's one even where the the great director yells cut and you like reshoot the scene because the scene wasn't right obviously um, which which is very much, uh, you know, which just you resets know, the whole combat, or yeah, well, it resets that particular scene you were shooting. Yeah, uh, it, you, I'm you not going to take. I'm not going to take the shot. Uh, cut. Bring in the stuntman. He's going to take it for me. <laughs> right. And I mean, when you that really, I think, lays bare that you're trying then to create uh, a story, right, and tell tell something the way that it works in that story, rather than the physics of what it would really like to be a commando in a raid like this, where of course you could just be killed by you know f- f- falling durian from a tree as you go by, right? So, yeah. Well, of course, D and D is you know, let's face it, you're you're emulating fantasy fiction. You're not trying to actually emulate the med- actual medieval ages. Right. Well, like the SCA, it's it's you know the SCA was the Middle Ages as they should have been, should have right? been yes without all the plagues and um, depredations and more duct tape. Yes, <laughs> very much more duct tape. <laughs> Lots of more duct tape. Lots of comfy beanbag chairs. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Have you heard of a game called Panzer Pranks? I have heard of Panzer Pranks. It's Stephen Lortz and his brother Kurt Lortz designed that. Uh, Wasn't that built on a similar idea of playing World War II, but as it was portrayed in the movies rather than I, how it really was? Yeah, it's much more slapstick, though. And it, re- it really is a war game. And since there aren't like, role-playing game rules in it, I'd say, uh, but there are hilariously uh, off-kilter war game rules that are in it for various things that happen. It's re- really, really, I'd say, more a parody game than anything else. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think Commando, though, is a game you could really play. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's Greg Kosica and Eric Goldberg, you know, people that went on to design, you know, Paranoia or, you know, Universe or Dragon Quest. Uh, you know, lot, lot, lots of uh, pretty famous role-playing games kind of came from that tradition. So, in lieu of a saving throw, that game pretty much just had the fate points only. Yeah, well, again, I think they, they felt like um, saving throws weren't a good fit for it. And ironically, when you when you look at a game even like Chivalry and Sorcery, which tries really hard to be like a medieval simulation with some mm-hmm. uh, practical magic like grafted onto it. In fact, you know, like 50 pages worth of practical magic. You've got to crack <laughs> open the Lesser Key of Solomon to like understand anything you read in the Chivalry and Sorcery rulebook. They don't really talk much about saving throws either. The text is kind of inconsistent. There are actually a few places where it mentions saving throws, but they never provide tables <laughs> or anything like that. Um I think it wasn't a good fit for them either. I think they were thinking about this simplest and uh, backhouse, very, very much a kind of uh, medieval sandbox game. And they didn't want it to be a, a story game that way. <laughs> I have a topic to throw on the table. Hmm. Okay. My magic user has thrown a disintegrate spell at the dragon whose breath weapon just wiped out half my party because they all missed their saves. The magic user throws disintegrate at the dragon's head. Does the dragon get a saving throw? In OD&D, he does. Disintegrate, um, confusion... Um, I was just going there. A number of spells have specific stipulations that creatures get saving throws from them. But if the whole idea is to recreate heroic fantasy, shouldn't saving throws be limited to the PCs? Yeah, so like I said, I I think there was a dual purpose, right? So the original purpose, the purpose that Mm -hmm. I think we see in Chainmail and in Leonard Pat's rules, is merely to balance that that the lack of a two-hit roll for these spells. And mm-hmm. so the, you, you don't want magic users to be overpowered. That I'm, Tim Cask is absolutely correct about this. A lot of what Gary, I think, was trying to do was to, was to obviate that. Um, but at the, sa- the same time, e- even magic items, right, get saving throws. Like, all kinds of things get saving throws. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. <laughs> I, I wonder if it kind of went beyond what was considered the original point of the game. Although I guess, you know, if... Conan has his magic sword or whatever. Obviously, if if he gets a saving throw, the sword should too. So, but Conan doesn't need any magic sword. Obviously. No, no, Conan not that he would. Yeah, Elric and his magic his... sword. How about right? That? Yes, Elric is. Elric, I think, is a deliberate inversion of every aspect of Conan. Conan, right? he's, yeah. He's got the white hair. He's like a effeminate sorcerer. An albino. Oh, right. he has to use magic on. just to fight. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, that was Moorcock's explicit mission, right? Yeah. yeah. Started as a king, ended up as a sellsword, you know, the other direction. I mean, I think I think it, we can't read too much design into Odin in the sense of really there wasn't that much design, right? I mean, I think by 1979, when Gary was writing the text for the Dungeon Master's Guide about this, he had an idea of what saving throws were that may or may not really correspond to what anybody thought in like 1973. And uh, we, we shouldn't read too much into that. But yeah. 
as people tried to make sense of this and explain what they were, that was the story that Gary told about them. And then, then we have these other data points. We look at things like bunnies and burrows and can kind of, or, or at Merle's work or at the, the, the commando game, that, that triangulating all these things or what Ken St. Andre thought. And there's kind of, it's a little different monsters and monsters, monsters, and it isn't tubbles and trolls. You kind of get different angles of it. Um, you know, we, we definitely see that that story element of it, that you're trying to simulate that heroic fantasy come through. Yeah, I remember talking to Frank Mincer once about, you know, the difference in the saving throw charts and the numbers. How did you, you know, what formulas did you use to come up with the numbers? He, he's heard people ask him all these years, and he goes, we just put whatever numbers sounded good. <laughs> you know, there was no grand, you know, meetings and discussions and logarithms to come up with this. It's just, yeah, that sounds about right. I know that there was some intent. I know I keep saying I, I, Tim Cass says, but I was just over at his house today visiting because he got out of the hospital. And I took the opportunity as he was recovering from surgery to hammer him about what he knew about saving <laughs> saving throws. Oh, um, he's on lots of drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about so that he is... he failed his save. <laughs> Tim on pain meds? I can get a word in edgewise. But uh, I was asking him about the period where they were, um, Gary and Tim were sort of midwifing AD&D together uh, about saving throws. And Tim just came up and confided in me that he had argued with Gary about the inclusion of saving throws, that there didn't need to be as many and they didn't need to be as important because Tim was coming from a, a DMing uh, perspective of saving throws shouldn't, saving throws shouldn't save a player from their own stupidity, that kind of thing. And uh, that Gary was adamant that the, the, the saving throw mechanic was going in AD&D exactly as he wanted it because he liked it that way. Right, the same way out of D&D. Okay. Uh, I could see his point. I, I, and one of the things, obviously, for our show... I really enjoy is the save or die mechanic, as I've said before, because again, it gives that whole no matter how high a level you are, if you get poisoned and fail that point, don't matter how many hit points you got, you're dead. Half a chance to polymorph somebody into a beetle is half a chance. So instead of a way of saving the characters, I'm thinking of it as a way of the DM still having lethality in their game. And it's interesting, again, if, if it, the DM, though, um, as Dennis Astar points out, right, has this, this latitude, um, which they may or may not exercise. Um, you know, you never know, perhaps, if they're exercising or not. Maybe that saves roll behind the screen. Um, there, there was a whole debate, too, around this time of whether players should get to roll their own, right? Or yeah, I was going to say, didn't the DMs the DM? originally roll everything? That was what the original rule suggested. Yeah. And uh, people went back and forth about this. this. was really, again, something that was vehemently argued in the 1970s. Some people felt that this was something uh, that, again, would kind of take players out of character, even. That, that was one of the main arguments that was wheeled out. There, there were people who thought that the players shouldn't have to understand the system at all, that mm -hmm. they should be able to just sit down and have this conversation with the DM, and the DM would just execute the system. And this puts a tremendous burden, of course, on the, the <laughs> DM to, to know it and to um, you know, process it in a timely manner and all that. Um, and then, of course, there, there were other, other people who were equally adamant that the players should understand everything about the system and should um, be sitting around crunching numbers and saying, well, you know, under circumstances, I know that if I use the pole arm, like, there's a chance that this will happen. And so maybe in this case, I'll just use the two hand axes because I think that, and, you know, the game out the numbers of them. 
Uh, You'll see people complaining that this was not supposed to be a game of number crunching. It's a game of imagination. And uh, one size never fit all from the the very start of this. Um, So many of the arguments we still see on Dragon's Foot or uh, I I won't mention certain alehouses. You know, they (laughs) they're been going on for 40 years. Well, I think it's mostly the the war gamers, the old school war gamers who tended to get into that mindset of I have to crunch the numbers, I have to play smart as opposed to, well, what would my character be doing? You know, I, I think that's where a lot of that dichotomy comes in, the people who approach it more as the war gaming than as the role playing game. Sort if of a text sense. These divisions, they were they were so clear at the start of the hobby. I mean, it's you know, there's this really facile sense in which you can think of D and D as a child of like you know fantasy fiction and war games, right? And you know, as a, as the offspring of that, it kind of which of the its two parents it most resembles is kind of in the eye of the beholder. And some people say, oh, you've really got war gaming's eyes. Um, if the nose is definitely fantasy fictions, like the the from the very start, uh, people perceived this this schism right in the community and there, there were people who approached it very much like it was still a war game there were people who uh like you know lewis pultifer is a, a great example a guy who i have a lot of respect for who was one of the first people who wrote um you know kind of philosophically about D, say as early as 77 um trying to explain uh what it was and how it should be and he really didn't understand like the science fiction fans that we were, were also fantasy fans who had grafted onto the game he couldn't stand the way that they played it wasn't it wasn't competitive they were you know for him it was he said it was a cheap substitute for like getting drunk was the way that he thought of it because <laughs> wow these, these stories were so um just off the wall and random um he, he called it lottery dnds and so much was just pushing weird buttons or finding decks of many things or, you know, I mean, but, but, you know, he, he would even characterize it sometimes like it was a, a story that the dungeon master was making up that kind of loosely involved the, the players as characters in it, but that the, the, that the characters really didn't have any agency in the game. And, you know, the, the games people who were encountering D and D early on, they felt really strongly about the agency that they, they should have. And, um, they, they strongly resisted any notion that the DM can just like, we were talking about, uh, Gary Gygax saying like, he can just decide, right. He only rolls the dice, you know, to listen to the sound that it makes to scare the players with the sound that it makes. But the DM then just decides what happens. And that's what the, that war gaming philosophy really hated, but it, it is kind of, um, authorial right if you look at the role of the dm as being like an author of a book like the author of a story then then those are entirely justifiable and that that schism existed immediately just just out of the gate because there were these two communities that both embraced dnd and they were so different and the 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 fantasy fiction people hated the mini maxers right who would come in like you were saying liz and like wanna you know figure out all the best stats and okay two hand axes are definitely my best option in this game and so that's the only thing i'll ever wield um if you do that in a loud voice at my table you will soon need a saving throw (laughs) so i wonder if that tension was what initially started the pull of dice rolls that evolved the characters away from the dm and having the player do the rolls or beyond the players doing the roles, the player getting the point, like the fortune point or the fate point or the story point or the hero point or whatever we want to call it. 
Or the um, victory where... point and victorious plug exactly. ins. Oh, plug. Would, would anyone else <laughs> like to plug something that has points like this that is on? <laughs> uh, uh, the Luxstat and Mutant Crawl Classics. <laughs> Very good. Very there good. we go. <laughs> but th- this is a feature of these games, right? And I, I think we take for granted that they're features of modern role playing games. It's fascinating to me that we can point to things like Commando or like Top Secret. They were there pretty much at the dawn of the hobby. I mean, Top, Top Secret existed in a pretty baked form by 77, 78. And uh, it took a while to get out because that's how TSR was at the time. Um, that th- These concepts are all there pretty much from the beginning. All this schism was there from the beginning. Um, and it's part of the project I'm working on now that I'm writing about, plug, 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 is, um, <laughs> about trying to show what those where there really was a shift and where so much of this is just, you know, um, being reinvented, recycled, repackaged, up, up, um, upgraded, um, upcycled, <laughs> take your pick. Liz? Oh, I was just going to mention, I think we're, you know, the, the wheel has come around again to that because, you know, we've talked a little in the past about how a lot of the mindset, it seems, of, you know, when third edition D&D came out, that it seemed as though the rules had been remade to place the... DM into more of a custodian sort of role, and he or she did not have a lot of authorial agency that much. You oh, know, they everything. were there. Yeah, they were there to simply, you know, run the game, and they couldn't make. There wasn't a lot of DM fiat anymore, and the players wanted it that way because you you seem to have more more of a an adversarial mindset you know the dm is out to get you if you give them you know give them an inch and they'll take a mile that kind of thing <laughs> yeah i think there is and i mean in some cases you know uh we referred here to tim cask and uh total party kills a few times before <laughs> the DM is out to get you i played a metamorphosis alpha the dm is sometimes out to get you um <laughs> but he's so nice about it yeah oh well jim is so sweet jim. Uh, <laughs> yeah he is um but no I, I think that is a that is a big part of it um that that notion that you want to take the DM down a peg, and it, it's not just because you're afraid of dying or you're afraid of being killed arbitrarily in, in these games. It's that you don't want this to be a story like Lewis Pulsifer is complaining about that the DM writes and like you know whatever the DM wants to happen is what happens. You, know, you don't want to be railroaded, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's that, especially you know when you're playing with in a convention or a format like that with people that aren't good friends of yours, you you haven't kind of gelled with a playstyle before. The question of how you design a system that's going to work when you get a few people sitting down like at a con to play for an afternoon um, that'll facilitate them not getting into conflicts over this kind of thing. I, I think a lot of think is really about about that and trying to solve that problem. Um, which is a different problem than solving for how do I make a useful tool that a bunch of friends who played together for the last 20 years can sit down and have a good time with. Okay, well, I must say I'm looking forward to the book project that you have not currently named, but that you are working on. (laughs) That's right. And hopefully it'll be out soon. I look forward to reading it. And we'd like to thank you for coming on to the show again. Hopefully we'll, yeah, we'll we'll be sure to have you on to answer all the emails we get from this. Yeah, I hope that, I hope we get a few from this. I hope we manage to rile a couple people up. Knock on wood. And so once again, we're heading down the dusty trails 
of goodbye for save or die and how are we heading down the road jim uh i just came back in my tardis having read john's new book it's fantastic i give it an a plus <laughs> creep exterminate everyone should buy it <laughs> how about you liz I'm going down the dusty road being chased by an evil snot monster. <laughs> oh, Lord. Bless your heart. Curse those jellies. I know it. <laughs> well, I would be heading down the road, but I failed my save versus Dragon Breath, so I'm dead. How about you, John? Uh, I start heading down that dusty road, but the great director didn't like the way I was doing it, so he yells cut. <laughs> gotta do it again and again again and again well hopefully we'll have you back on the show again and again and thanks everybody for listening to Save or Die thanks a lot <laughs> see ya bye bye Reorg. and we're out Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Save or Die theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.Bandcamp.com. John Peterson's book, Playing at the World, A History of War Games and Role-Playing Games, is available on Amazon.com and wherever fine gaming books are sold. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Which is why John listens to every single episode that's ever been put out. Well, can can I ask a favor, John? Would you would you have time when the episode ends for me to just call you back one on one and record a bumper promo for the beginning of the show? We wouldn't use it on this show, but we'd use it on other shows. Just something like oh, sure. I'm John Peterson, author of Save Playing a Playing Promo. <laughs> Saved, saved at the world. I missed my own memory save. Because <laughs> I've meant to ask you every time you've been on, and I keep forgetting, and I've got Ethan Killstorm for crying out loud. I need John Peterson. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> hey, there's the title of your next book. <laughs> I've got Ethan Killstorm, and I need John Peterson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>